Dustin, and I have the privilege of serving on the production team here at Redemption Church. I'd grown up in church and always knew about God, but never really understood what it was like to actually have a relationship with Him. Growing up, I had a, a pretty tough hand dealt to me at an early age, um, and it just seemed to escalate as I grew older. My mom walked out of me and my family's life when I was six years old and um, left us with uh, a single father uh, and five kids. So as you can imagine, it was just, that was tough in itself. In the year uh, 2009, uh, a tragic accident happened with uh, me and my youngest sibling, uh, my little brother Ronnie. We were um, messing with a firearm that we shouldn't have been messing with. and. Um, it accidentally had gone off in my hands and shot and killed my little brother. Then my sophomore year of high school, uh, I'd lost my best friend in a tragic car wreck. Um, they were drinking and driving and um, I lost three of my classmates that year. It started to seem at that point that everything I touched or loved or cared about would just break. I felt unworthy. I felt an enormous amount of guilt. My dad, being a, a single father, became ill and disabled. So as a man, I wanted to provide for my family. So right out of high school, I went started working, providing for my family. And that kind of gave me an avenue of like where to hide. Um, I hid behind my work. It was an outlet for me, whatever emotions I was dealing with, that's what I hid behind was uh, working a bunch of hours. Then one day I got invited to redemption by uh, a girl that would uh, eventually become my beautiful wife. After going to redemption for a while, I began to realize that I was worthy of love my entire life. And I was covered in God's grace and His mercy. And that God has been with me through all the lows and all the hardships, and He's never left my side. Well, today is January 30th, which means that by now, 80% of Americans who have made a New Year's resolution have failed. Anybody make a resolution this year? Anybody? How's that going so far? Yep, yep. 80% of resolutions have failed. Now, if you raise your hand, I'm not calling you a failure. You did, all right? But statistically, listen, 49% of Americans, they make New Year's resolutions. And then by the end of January, they fall off plan, they get off track, and they do not succeed when it comes to those resolutions. And so I was thinking about it this week, and I was wondering, why do people fail when it comes to their resolutions? And at first I thought it was because they just didn't have the motivation. They just didn't have the passion behind it. But then I realized, no, when it comes to bettering yourselves, when it comes to resolutions, people tend to be very passionate about those things. 
People get very passionate. That's why at the beginning of the year, all you see is new year, new me. This is going to be the best year ever. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to work out. I'm going to save money. And they make their resolution. They get very passionate about those resolutions, whatever it may be, to lose weight, to start a new career, to go back to college, to save money, to to read through the Bible in a whole year, whatever it may be. People get very passionate about that. But yet, the passion eventually wears off. And what I discovered is this, is that passion is not enough without a plan. The reason why most people fail is because they fail to plan. If you got your notes, go ahead and pull them out. We're a note-taking church here at Redemption. Here's the first note that I want you to take. It's going to guide our thought throughout this sermon today. You ready? Failure to plan is nothing more than a plan to fail. How many of you, you are like me, you don't like making plans. You're like, I'm just going to go where the wind blows and paint with all the colors of the wind. I'm going to be led by the Holy Ghost. I don't need a plan because I trust in the Lord. How many of you, that's you, you just don't like making plans, right? Right, well, just so you know, that is a plan. It's just a bad plan because it's nothing more than just a, a plan to fail. You need to have a plan in place if you want to mature, if you want to grow, and if you want to be successful. It's not always about passion, but it's oftentimes about making a plan. Now listen, most people love dogging on New Year's resolutions. I don't. In fact, me and Ashley, we made a New Year's resolution this year. Here's what our resolution was. Our resolution is that this year we're going to go to the gym three to five times a week. Now listen, we're not trying to get jacked or ripped. You know, I'm not trying to compete for Mr. or Mrs. Olympia. We're not running a marathon or the Ironman or anything like that. But we do want to be healthy. We want to be, we want to be in shape because we want to pastor this church for a very long time. We want to have energy, and when Esther brings home her first boyfriend, I want to intimidate him a little bit. That's, that's all I'm looking for. And so, and so we, we put a plan in place. Back in November and December, me and Ashley, we would sit down, and we would make a plan for when it comes to our workout. Now, I went on Google, and I looked up, you know, must-haves for beginner workouts, because we've tried this before, and we failed, and it's because we didn't have a plan. And so this year we put a plan in place, and I realized that there's some things that you need to have in place in order to be successful when it comes to beginner workouts. So there's a few things. First thing we saw is this, is that we needed a meal prep, because it doesn't matter how many miles you run, if all you're eating is grande burritos smothered in queso, it's not really going to help you any. And so abs are made in the kitchen, not in the gym. That's what I heard at least. So, so we, we got a meal prep plan going on. The, the second thing is, is we needed to get one of those shaker bottles. Look, you cannot work out without one of these. Right, so we had to get us one of these little shaker bottles, right? I mean, everybody in the gym just walking around, just shaking their bottles as if this was a workout in itself. And so, so we went and we got us some, some shaker bottles so that way we could look official. The other thing is we needed to get... We needed to get uh, actual appropriate gym clothes. You know why? Because it's really hard to do squats and skinny jeans, right? right? You just can't get low enough, right? And so you just can't quite. So we had to buy some workout gear. The other thing we needed is to find the right gym for us. Now, we're busy parents with two amazing and really hyper children. Somebody amen that. Y'all know my kids too well. All right. And so, uh, and so we need to find a gym that has childcare so that way we can drop them off and we can go do our thing and pick them up, hopefully all in one piece. And so, so we found a gym with childcare. And then lastly, we needed to get a personal trainer because we have no clue what we're doing. 
And so we got a personal trainer, someone to help us, someone to show us the proper routines, the proper techniques so that we don't hurt ourselves. And on the days we want to quit, they motivate us. When times get tough, they encourage us. And someone to help hold us accountable. And so those are some of the must-haves that me and Ashley put in place. Why? Because we want to plan to succeed and not have a plan to fail. See, we were very passionate about this, but we realized that passion is not enough without a plan. And so we had to put a plan in place. And I am excited to tell you that after 30 days, we're still doing good. All right, all right. Because we put a plan in place. Now, listen, what's true for us physically is also true for us in other areas of our lives. Right? When it comes to your finances, you need a plan in place. We call that a budget because if you don't plan for your money, then you're going to fail when it comes to your money. And so if you don't have a budget in place, guess what? Our church offers a solution. James Guest with Guest Financial Coaching. Right now he's leading our financial winter session, and he would love to be able to help you with that. But you need to have a plan in place when it comes to your finances. The same is true when it comes to your emotional health. It's called coping. You need to have a plan in place for whenever anxiety comes in, whenever that depression creeps back in, whenever you feel like isolating, retreating, and withdrawing, that's not good for you. You need to have a plan in place when those thoughts come in to where then you can act according in healthy measures. If you need help with that, we have a class for you too. Shelby Guest, our pillars of emotional health, she would love to be able to help you with that as well. Our church is trying to provide resources. Why? Because we want for you to have a plan when things get difficult, financially, emotionally, marriage. Maritally, you need to plan. So many people, they spend so much time planning for a great wedding, they forget to plan to have a great marriage. Listen, the wedding day is a great day, but it's not the most important day of your marriage. You know what day is? The last day. And people don't make it to the last day because they don't have a plan in place on how to be successful when it comes to their marriage. You know that those who do premarital counseling, reduce their divorce rates by 39%. Why? Because they have a plan when it comes to their marriage. This is true physically, emotionally, relationally, financially, which also means, guess what? It's true for us spiritually. Spiritually, you need to have a plan because passion is not enough. Right now, there's a lot of people. I love to see the church grow. I love seeing new people come into the church, meet Jesus, get baptized, come to First Wednesday, be filled with the Holy Spirit, receive healing, go to next steps, get on a serve team, join in a small group. I love to see it. I get so fired up when I see new believers come into the faith because they just fill our church with so much passion. But at the same time, what do you do when that passion wears out? Because eventually it's going to wear out. What do you do when that moment happens? You know what you need? You need to have a plan in place, a plan to grow, a plan to flourish, a plan to develop in your discipleship, and a plan for you to mature in your faith. And that's what Paul is going to give us today in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. He's going to give us some must-haves for maturity. He's going to give us some plans when it comes to growing in our faith. And I love this because the church of Colossae is very similar to the church of ours. It's a new church. It's a young church. It had been planted just a few years previously. The church was growing. And like any other church, it just kind of eventually begins to lose its passion. It begins to lose its focus. And all of a sudden, there's problems and there's 
chaos that comes in, and it's having an identity crisis. And so here's what Paul does. He writes this letter to this young church filled with new believers, and he's going to give them a plan because failure to plan is a plan to fail, and he's going to give them five must-haves for Christian maturity. The same way me and Ashley, we Googled must-haves for beginner workouts. This is your must-haves to develop in your relationship with Christ. These are the five must-haves for when you want to become mature in your Christian faith. And here's where Paul starts off. Who wants to mature in faith? Who wants to grow in your relationship with Christ? Who wants to be successful and sanctified? Who wants to follow Jesus for the rest of their life and all their days? Who wants to mature in your faith? One person. Come on. Amen. Hallelujah. We're going to hold an altar call at the end. I expect this place to be packed, all right? One person with me, mature in faith, me and you, brother. Come on. So here's what Paul says. If you want to be mature in your faith, here's the first thing you need. Pull out your notes. Write this down. You ready? A theology of suffering. Now, how many of you didn't think Paul was going to start there? How many of you thought Paul was going to say, if you want to be mature in your faith, you got to speak in tongues. If you want to be mature in your faith, you have to tithe 10%. And then 10% on top of that 10%. If you want to be mature in your faith, here's what you got to do. You have to read the King James only version of the Bible. Glory to God. How many of you thought if you, if you want to be mature in your faith, you got to go on a mission trip. You have to do these things and wear these clothes and vote for this presidential candidate. And if you do all of these things, then maybe that's how you become mature in faith. That's not what he says. He's what, here's what he says. He says, if you want to know how to grow and you want to be mature in your faith, when the passion wears out, you have to have a plan on what to do when you suffer. It's a theology of suffering. This is where he starts. Look what he says in this verse. He says, he says I rejoice in my sufferings. How many of you don't like that verse? We don't like that verse because we don't like talking about suffering. Do you know why? Because many of us, we were raised in what is known as a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic culture. What does that mean? That means that God exists solely to meet our needs. That our version of God exists to glorify us and to give us whatever we want. That as long as we're a good person, then God is going to be good to us, and he's going to give us good things. And so we treat God as if he is a genie who only exists to grant our wishes. Not that we exist to glorify him, but rather he exists to glorify us and to give us our wants and needs and meet all of our desires. And this is the society that we swim in. Most people, the majority of people in America, believe in a God, but they believe in their own personal God in their own making. This is moralistic, therapeutic deism, and it's running amok, and it is destroying an entire generation of believers. You know why? Because it is a philosophy philosophy that is devoid of what to do when you suffer. Because if that's your version of God, the moment pain comes, the moment hardship comes, the moment suffering comes your way, you know what you think? God has abandoned me. He has forsaken me. He must not be real. Everything I was taught in church, it must be a lie. And then all of a sudden you reject the truth of the gospel because you have no framework for what to do when life goes wrong. I see it in new believers all the time. 
They come in, their life is in crisis. Maybe it's marriage, maybe it's addiction, maybe it's through depression, whatever it may be. They come into the church, they find hope, they find freedom, they find healing, they get baptized, they join a small group. The moment conflict comes, the moment difficulty comes, they dip. Why? Because they don't have a theology of suffering. Passion's great, but passion without a plan is nothing more than just a plan to fail. And so you need to have a theology of suffering. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Have you ever met a Christian like that? You meet them and you're like, how are you doing, brother? They're like, praise the Lord. I'm the head, not the tail. I am blessed and highly favored. And you look at him and you're like, you got hit by a car. And they're like, well, at least it wasn't a bus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Could be worse. You ever met a Christian like that? They're annoying, aren't they? But I think for many people, the reason why we're able to say, I rejoice in my suffering is because we actually have a healthy theology of suffering. Listen, I know that you didn't come here today to to hear the sermon over suffering. Like many of you right now, you're probably wishing that Paul would have said, if you suffer. That would have been nice. If you suffer. How many of you wish he would have said if? Like if would be nice. If you suffer, but that's not what he said. Right? He didn't say hypothetically, supposedly, maybe one out of a hundred of you in this room, you may suffer. And so if this applies to you, listen up. But for the rest of you, just go ahead and forget everything that I'm about to say. Okay, if you suffer, that's not what he says. He says, when you suffer, in my sufferings, because it is never a matter of if, it is always a matter of when. You will suffer. And so you need to know what to do when you do suffer, I know that there's many of you today, you're suffering, you're hurting. And this word is a word for you, but I know there's many of you who you have suffered. I was talking with a family out in the parking lot, telling me what they're walking through and what their daughter is going through, suffering. And if you're a new believer and you're Still filled with passion. I I hate to burst that bubble, and I never want you to lose that passion, that's for sure. But I do want you to have a plan in place because it's never a matter of if. It's always a matter of when. When you suffer, how will you respond? And so Paul, he he gives us a theology of suffering right here, and this is why it's so important. And I want you to to write this down. Here's, here's Here's my view. It's my perspective This is my theology over suffering, and I'm going to share it with you, and I hope that it helps you. Is that God did not cause my suffering, but he will use my suffering. God didn't cause my suffering. Ashley, we miscarried our first child. Big question, why? But here's what I had to tell myself. God did not cause this, but I do believe that God will somehow use this. I was raised by addicts. God did not cause the abuse that I experienced as a child, but I do believe in his glory he will use that. I had an addiction. I did not believe that God caused my addiction, but you know what? I believe that in his glory he will use that addiction to be able to help others find freedom. I was abandoned by my dad as a baby. He lived five miles down the street for the first 19 years of my life. I never met him, nor he knew he existed. Grew up with a father wound, and there was an empty seat at the dining room table every single night. And as a child, you know what that does to a little boy? But I do not believe that my father in heaven caused that. 
but I do believe that in his glory, he will use that. Listen, God did not cause the suffering that you experience nor go through, but if you hold on to hope and trust in him, I believe that he will use that for his glory, for your good, and for the benefit of others. As a church, let's just go ahead and settle in our heart right now. Just repeat after me. God did not cause my suffering, but he will use my suffering. One of my favorite verses is out of the book of Genesis where, where Joseph says this, what you have meant for evil, God has now used for good. God didn't cause the suffering, but he is so good. He is so great. He is sovereign over it to where he can take it, turn it around and use it for his glory, your good, and for the benefit of others. God did not cause it, but I do believe that God will use it. Say, Byron, how do you know that? Well, here's how I know. It's because I believe that God is good. I just believe that God is good. And that God is not the source of evil, but yet he is sovereign over it. Say, well, where do you get that? Here's where I get it from. I get it from this book called the Bible. Say, well, where's that at in the the Bible? It goes all the way back to the book of beginnings in the book of Genesis 1 through chapter 3. Here's where we, we see this happen at. Is that when God created the heavens and the earth, he said it is? There you go. Therefore, God is good. And then when he made Adam and Eve our our first parents, you know what he said about them? Very good. This is God's intention and his design over all of human creation, that we would be in relationship with a good God and we would have good relationships with one another. This is God's original intention plan. And then he places Adam and Eve where? In the Garden of Eden. Do you know what that word Eden means in the Hebrew? It means the word delight. It means joy. It means health. It means happiness. It means relationship and flourishing. It's a garden of joy. It's a garden of delight. And so when you look at God, here's his original intention. He is good. He made us for his goodness, and he placed us in the garden to experience goodness. That's God's original creation and design. So you look around and you say, well, Byron, where did it all go wrong? Listen, if you're looking for someone to blame when it comes to the problem of suffering, I'll give you a three-letter word, and it's not G-O-D, it's S-I-N. So many people want to blame God for the problem of suffering. Listen, God did not cause that suffering. You want someone to blame? You want something to look towards to say the reason as to why? Here it is. It's because sin. Adam and Eve, our first parents, they sinned, they fell, they rebelled, and they separated themselves from God. And because of one man's sin, death has now entered into the world. It's the reason for chaos. It's the reason for disease. It's the reason for conflict. It's the reason for sin and death. All of that is a result of the fall. Flip over from Genesis 3 to chapter 4. It opens up with a brother murdering his brother. Why? Because sin always leads to death. Death comes in. Genesis 4 is nothing more than, and they died, 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 and they died. And it has continued from Adam and Eve all the way down to you and me. And it's all a result of sin. And so what is God's plan throughout all of this? Well, here's what God's plan was. Genesis 3, 
From the seed of a woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. This is known as the Proto-Evangelion. It is the proclamation of the very first gospel that God would send his son Jesus and his heel would be bruised. What is that? That is suffering. That Jesus, God, very God, would enter into human history, identify with us in our suffering, grow up in poverty, that he would experience loss in the death of friends and family, that he would be outcasted and ostracized, and that he would go down to the lowest of lows so that way he could identify with us when we are at our lowest of lows. And the greatest cause of suffering the world has ever seen is that God, Mary himself, hung upon a cross, beaten and broken and bloodied and bruised, and that he would die the death that we deserve, and then he would give us a new life that we never earned through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What you meant for evil, God has turned around, and he has used it for good. And then in eternity future, the book of Revelation, it closes with this. As Jesus comes and we stand and behold him in all of his glory, every tear will be wiped away. Every hurt will be healed. He removes the garments of shame and he dresses us in linens of white. And then he welcomes us into his eternity where guess what there is? New heavens, new earth, new creation the garden of delight, now and forevermore. So when you think about God, I want you to know that he is so good and that even in the midst of our suffering, he is still working in our lives. So when it comes to suffering, you got two ways you can view it. The first way you can view suffering is that suffering is a courtroom. You can look at it and you can say, God, Why is this happening? It's for your punishment. You know, there's whole systems of theology within Christianity that would say this is the way that God views us. That they would say that you've done wrong, and so God is now going to punish you. Because of your words and sins and actions and deeds, God is going to dole out judgment and punishment on you. And that's what a lot of people think. God, what did I do to deserve this? God, why? God, what is happening? And we view God as if he's a cruel judge doling out judgment and punishment on us. Now listen to me. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you've given your salvation to him and you believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins, I want you to understand something. Is that there is no punishment left for you and those who are in Christ. Do you know how I know that? Because Jesus substituted himself in your place, paid the penalty of your sins, and the full weight of the wrath of God was poured out on Christ on that cross, which means God has no wrath left for you. The cup of wrath is empty. Jesus drinks the cup of the wrath of God. So when the gavel of eternity drops on your soul, here's the verdict, not guilty. Because of what Christ has done in your place. It would be unjust. It would be illegal even in our corrupt system here in America to punish two people for the same crime. Therefore, if you're in Christ, there is no double jeopardy. God will not punish you and Jesus at the same time. Jesus received your punishment. You have received his forgiveness. You're free. So suffering, my friends, is not a courtroom. You know what it is? It's a classroom. It's a classroom where God is walking with us even in our suffering. That God is with us. That we serve a God who understands us. 
The author of Hebrews says he can sympathize with us even in our weakness. I love what Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preacher, says. He says, a God who never cried could never wipe away my tears. And what's the portrait we see of Jesus as he stands looking over the city? You know what he does? He weeps and he cries over the people who are suffering in their city because there is no one to love them. This is the God that we serve. This is why the gods of the age and moralistic therapeutic deism could never provide any sort of relief or comfort or help whenever you're truly suffering. Only the God of the Bible can do that. Because our God, he is not up in a courtroom, but rather he is walking with us through the classroom of life. And so when you're suffering, here's what I want you to know. God did not cause the suffering that you went through. I just don't believe it. I just don't believe that God is the cause of miscarriage or abuse. I don't believe that God is the cause of rape or molestation. I don't believe that God is up there just giving people COVID-19. I just don't believe that God is the source of, of cancer. I just, I just don't believe it. But here's what I do know. I do know that God will take the most painful moments of our lives and turn it around to be the greatest ministry to others that we will have in our lives. That's what God will do when you learn to trust him. So I feel a heaviness in the room. So I'm going to take a moment just now before we move on to the rest of the sermon. I just want to take a moment. I want to pray for those in the room who are suffering right now. Because I want you to know that there is a church here at Redemption, whether you're a first time or you've been here for a minute, that we love you and we want what's good for you. And the only thing that's worse than suffering is suffering alone. So if you would just let me be your pastor for a moment and pray over you. Heavenly Father, God, I pray for the hurts of this room. I pray for those who this isn't just a sermon, but God, this is a life, a lifeline. It's not just words, these are realities for them. And so God, would you just take the truth of your scripture and just meld it into their hearts to let them know that you love them and you're near to them. And encourage them that there is a church here that they do not have to suffer in silence. But God, they can reach out and get help. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Which leads to the second point. Is a love for the local church. Here, here's what he says here. He says, pick it up. It says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given for me to, to you to make the word of God fully known that this mystery for hidden, hidden for the ages, generations, but now revealed to the saints, to them God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, question, who is Paul writing this to? To the church, to the Colossians, which wasn't just a church, it was a local church. Paul's writing this. In fact, much of your New Testament is nothing more than just letters written to what? To local churches. Paul in Colossians is basically a love letter. He's just talking about how much he loves this church. He's like, man, you guys are amazing. You're rooted and you're grounded. The gospel is multiplying. You're flourishing. People keep meeting Jesus. And guess what? In you is Christ, the hope of glory. I love you guys so much. 
It's like Colossians is just him gushing with his love for the church. He's just writing a love letter to the local church. And here's what I was thinking about this week. I love my church. What about you? Do you love the local church? Do you love the things that God loves? Do you love the things that the Bible presents before us as something we are to give our lives to? Do you have a love for the local church? Let me hear you. Do you love your church? Come on. That's good. You know, a lot of people don't, though. You know, it's not really popular to to love your church these days. Have you ever been on Instagram? Have you been on Twitter? What are the conversations they're having about the church on Twitter? It's not like, man, my church is so awesome. People got saved and we had next steps. That's not what people are tweeting. People are criticizing, bashing, complaining, rejecting the, the local church. It's almost like it's popular today to say that you love Jesus, but you don't love the church. How many of you ever heard say that, somebody say that? You're like, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. You ever heard someone say that? I want to show you why that's immature. And if you said that after today, never say that again, all right? And here, here's the reason why. Because let's think about different metaphors the Bible uses when it refers to the church. Okay, one metaphor I could think of off the top of my head is we are the body of Christ. Now, let's say, gentlemen, let's say you go home today and you walk up to your wife and you say, hey, babe, I love you. Let's say you've been married for about 20 years. And you say, baby, I love you, but I don't like your body. How's that going for you? Right, you're about to get the right hand of fellowship, bam, upside your head. Y'all about to have some postmarital counseling. That's what's about to happen. It's not going to go well for you. But now, now, let's just say it like this. What about after you got slapped, I come up to you and I say, hey, man, just want you to know I love having you in the church. Thank you for being so great. Thank you for being so generous to your church. Man, you're just such a great godly example. I love you but I can't stand your wife. Now, I'm about to get slapped right upside the head with that right hand of fellowship right across the jaw, right? It's not going to go, why? Why? Because to dishonor a man's wife is to dishonor that man. And when you dishonor the church, what are you doing? You're dishonoring Christ. They're one in the same. The same way that a man loves his wife also accepts her body. In the way that you love Christ, you're also accepting the church. They are a package deal together. And so when people say, I love Jesus, just not the church, it's immature. And I would even say borderline heretical. It might sound good on Instagram. It might get you a couple likes on Facebook. Someone might retweet it. But can I tell you, that's immaturity. Because to love Jesus is also to have a deep love for the local church. But that's not the way most people see it today. Because, again, we live in an individualistic society where God only exists to be able to meet our needs. And so it's an immaturity in people to say they love Jesus but, but not the church. Now, listen, I get it. Is the church perfect? No. Is Redemption Church a perfect church? No. Is the church filled with hypocrites? Yes, but guess what? You're not perfect, and you're a hypocrite too. So here's what I say. There's always room for one more. Somebody get some more rows in the back of here. We got more room for you because you're a hypocrite as well. And so my advice to you is this. My encouragement to you is this, is to not just go to church, but to love your church. Love your church. 
Get plugged in. I get it. There are unhealthy churches. And some of you have experienced abuse at the hands of manipulative leaders. I understand that. I've been there in those moments too. But here's what my advice is. is not to run away from the church, but to find a good church. To find a good church where there is health. To find a good church where there is love and healing. A place where you can not just go, but a place to where you can love that church. Find you a church that you can love. Go all in. Let 2022 be the year that you go all in for the local church. Say, this is the year that I'm going to serve. This is the year that I'm going to tithe. This is the year that I'm going to join a small group. I'm going to go to Next Steps next week, and I'm going to discover my gifts, and I'm going to make a difference. This is the year I'm going to be at First Wednesday. I'm going to raise my hands. When pastor tells a joke, I'm going to laugh. And even if it ain't funny, I'm still going to laugh. Amen, hallelujah. I'm going all in for Jesus this year. Let this be the year that you don't just go to church, but you love your church. He has a love for his church. You want to be mature? I have never met anyone who has become mature in Christ apart from a local church. Because it's in that church you're going to find strength. You're going to find hope. You're going to find healing. It's in that church you're going to use your spiritual gifts. It's in that church where your giving is going to be multiplied to where it's going to go to Convoy of Hope. And we're going to feed an entire school this year because of your giving. It's in that local church that men are going to become great husbands and dads. It's in that local church that women are going to become amazing moms and wives. It's in that church your children, they're going to be brought up and taught the truth of Scripture. And they're going to go forward and transform and change the world world. It's in that local church. You're going to have relationships. Faith is found. Friendships are formed and lives are changed and destinies are altered. And that all happens within this local church. And so my, 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 my advice to you is this. Is don't just go to church. Love your church. That's maturity. Number three, a hunger to study the word of God. Here's how he says it next. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. Now, hold up your Bible. If you brought your Bibles to church, this is church. Come on, hold up your Bibles. Let me see. Let me see your Bible. If you did not bring your Bible, shame on you. No, I'm kidding. Hold up your fake Bible on your phone. Let's go. Hold them up. Hold them up. Let me see them Bibles. All right. This is the word of God. This word is true and trustworthy. This word tells me who God is, who I am, and how I am to live to be pleasing to him. This is the final rule and authority in the life of the believer. It is not just any book. It is the book that God wrote. Other books are about God, but this is the book that comes from God. This word is timeless. Therefore, it is always timely. This word transforms and changes lives forever. If God's word says it, I believe it. That settles it. If it's in God's word, it's for my good. This is the word of God. And it's beautiful. And what I've discovered is this, is that a lot of people own Bibles, they just don't read them. Do you know that one out of three Americans, or every American household has at least three Bibles? I mean, we live in the most privileged time in all of human society. Not only when it comes to being in America, but also when it comes to the church. Did you know that for the first 1,500 years of the church, people didn't have access to Bibles? Right, I mean, it was only 500 years before they actually had copies of the Bibles because they kept them in libraries and you would have to go to the library and you had to be reading that certain language. 
But then after that, you had to be the literacy rate, the poverty rate, the location. People just couldn't own Bibles. And then you throw in the Catholic Church and all of the manipulation that they've done to people from 500 to 1500, where they actually chained Bibles to the pulpit. And if you didn't know Latin, you couldn't read the word and you had to trust and understand whatever that priest was saying. For 1500 years, nobody in Christ had access to scriptures. 1500 years. And then Martin Luther and William Tyndale, and along with the printing press, they believed that every believer should have access to a scripture. And so they started printing off Bibles. People read them, and they're like, this is what I've been longing for. This is what I've been hungering for. And it lit an explosion known as the Reformation, where people just had a hunger for the word of God. And that leads us today to where 500 years later, we have ESV Bibles, NIV Bibles, NKJV Bibles, KJV Bibles, KJVVVDB Bibles. And there's, there's journal Bibles and illuminated Bibles, which I think is a nightlight. I'm not really sure. There's study Bibles, ESV Bibles. I've even seen a bath time Bible where it's made out of waterproof paper where you can read your Bible while taking a bubble bath. All the moms in the house said amen. Praise the Lord, right? But yet... We also live in the most biblically illiterate time in Christendom as well. Do you, know, do you know why I believe so? It's because people might own Bibles, but they don't read them. People don't have a hunger for the word of God. If you don't have a hunger for the word of God, might I just submit to you this? Maybe it's because you're filled with other things. I love what John Piper, he says this. He says, in the last days, the... Root cause of prayerlessness will not be a lack of time, but because of our distractions. We have access to the word of God, and yet so many people come to church, and they're not hungry for the word, but they're starving for the word. You know, there's a difference between hunger and starvation, right? Hunger is when you have to have it, you want it, you need it, you desire it, you crave it. Starvation is where you're near the point of death. And if, listen, if you're here today, and the only time you get the Bible is when I say, open up your Bibles. Can I tell you, you're not hungry, you're starving. What do, we, what do we say about somebody who only eats one meal a week? You know what they are? They're sick. And some of you are wondering, why am I not maturing? You know why? Because you're malnourished. Say, why am I not growing in my faith? Because you're not feeding your faith with the living word of God. Say, why, why, am I not, why am I not moving forward? It's because you're still stuck and you're sick. No wonder you're tired and exhausted. No wonder you feel deprived. No wonder because you're the one who's depriving yourself. Because we're like a society who is starving to death in a grocery store. You're surrounded by God's word, and yet you still don't eat and feast on it. So what, why, why is this? Because I think we misunderstood something that's very important. Listen, the Bible is daily bread, not cake for special occasions. It's daily bread. You got to put it in your body every single day. You want to be healthy? You got to feed your body. You want to be spiritually healthy? You got to feed your soul. The Bible is daily bread, not just cake for special occasions. If the only time you get the Bible is from me, I love you. I'm sorry, but you need to have a personal devotion for yourself. When I meet people who say, Pastor, I am hungry, I need to be fed. You know what I think? That's a person who's immature. Now, listen, there's a place for me as a pastor. I have to preach the word of God. That's why every single week we're going to go straight through books of the Bible, verse by verse. Now we're in Colossians, 
We're going to spend the summer in First and Second Samuel. We just got out of the book of Joshua. Spent three years in the book of Mark. Like We're going to go through the word of God together. But if that's the only time you get God's word in your life, no wonder you're hungry and you need to be fed because you haven't learned how to feed yourself. It's an immaturity. My daughter Ruth, she's two. I have to cut her food up for her. And that's okay because she's two. Esther is five. If I'm playing Here Comes the Airplane with Esther at five years old, there's a problem. And I don't care how long you've been in church. If you don't read the word, you're not mature. You might be mature in church, but you're not mature in Christ. You know, there's a difference between being mature in church versus being mature in Christ. And if you're not feeding yourself daily with the word of God, then no wonder you are going to be sick and exhausted and tired because you don't have a hunger for the word of God itself. So there's the conviction. How's that feel? Oh, it hurts so good. But I never want to convict without redirecting. So I always want to just, I want to build you up. I don't want to beat you up. I want to be able to connect and correct. And so let me go ahead and give you five tips for a better Bible study. Real quick, five tips for a better Bible study. And you can do this this week. Five tips for a better Bible study. First thing is this, make it enjoyable. Find you a place in your house maybe on the couch, maybe a coffee table, get you a nice little blanket and make you some coffee and have a space that you actually want to be at and you enjoy it. Number two, make it simple. Don't try to read the entire Bible in 30 days. No, just read a book, read a chapter, read a verse, pray through it, enjoyable, simple. Number three, make it yours. Highlight it, underline it, mark it up, make it yours. Journal out on the sides, leave notes in the margin, date it so you can come back and see answered prayers three years from now. Number four, make it clear, get a commentary, get a book, listen to good biblical teachers and pastors. Number five, make it a habit. Here's what I tell people all the time. If you can't read a chapter, read a verse. And if you miss one day, don't miss two. If you can't read a chapter, no worries, read a verse because something is better than nothing. A little nourishment is better than starvation. You gotta make it a habit in your life. If you can't read a chapter, read a verse. And if you miss one day, don't miss two. Why? Because the Bible is daily bread, not cake for special occasions. Do you have a hunger for the word of God? Which leads to number four, a burden to reach the lost. Here's how he says it in this moment. He says, in him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone, what's the word? Mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Raise your hand if you love Jesus. Hands up, hands up, hands up. All right, now, if you know and love Jesus, but you also know and love somebody who does not know and love Jesus, keep your hand raised. Every hand in this room should be raised. Now, you can put your hands down. I just, I just want to know, when you think about that person's eternity, how does that make you feel? Because, you know, life is short and forever is a long time and everybody spends eternity somewhere. Do you have a burden to reach the lost? Does it, does it break your heart to know that someone you know and love might spend eternity apart from Christ? Do you have a, a burden to be able to share the gospel and the good news. That's what Paul's saying here, warning and admonishing everyone so that they might be presented mature in Christ. What is he saying? That the goal of a believer is not just to make disciples, but to mature disciples and to be able to share the good news of Jesus with others so that they, they might be saved. This is what mature Christians do. We, we share our faith. One of the best ways for you to grow in your faith is for you to share your faith with others. 
But 95%, according to LifeWay Research, 95% of Christians in America will never lead one person to Jesus throughout their lifetime. 95%. Through personal relationship and evangelism. 95%. You know what that tells me? Only 5% of Christians in America over the last 20 years have been maturing in Christ. We've been really good at church, but we haven't been very faithful in leading other people to Christ as well. So here's the challenge I issue every single year. God did not create us to be a statistic. What's, what's the vision? A gospel-centered movement. We are a gospel-centered movement in the heart of the city where every man, woman, and child experiences life change through Jesus. God did not call us to be a, move, a statistic. He called us to be what? A movement. And so here's what I do every year. I'm issuing it right now. This year is the year that you get your one. Everybody gets one this year. We will not be a statistic. So you're going to get your, your one. One person. One person. Can you do one? I'm not asking you to save the city. I'm just asking you to reach one person. One person that you are going to pray and invest and invite. One person you're going to take for coffee. One person you're going to share the good news with. Everybody this year gets your one. How many are we going to get? One. Everybody gets one. That's it. Who's your one this year? Maybe your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, your husband, your wife, that guy at the gym, your barista at Starbucks. Who's your one this year? You know, the best way to invite somebody to church is you ask them. You say, hey, you, want to come to church with me? That's it. That's all you got to do. So this year, everybody is going to do what? Get your one. Everybody gets their one. Baptisms are on Easter Sunday, so get ready. That's my challenge for you is to baptize somebody on Easter Sunday this year. Write in your notes, who's my one? And this year is going to be the year that you're going to come to First Wednesday. You're going to stand in this altar. You're going to fast, and you're going to intercede, and you're going to bridge the gap between heaven and hell for that one person. You're going to take Fridays, and you're going to skip lunch on Fridays. You're going to sit in your truck at the refineries, and you're going to fast for that one person. This is going to be the year that you're going to take that invite card when you leave, and you're going to go out to eat, and you're going to leave a fat tip with an invitation to Redemption Church because you're going to get your one this year. Who's getting their one this year? Lastly, number five, a commitment to keep showing up. Here's how Paul closes this section out. For I want you to know how great the struggle I have for you and those of Laodicea. Laodicea is like the Golden Triangle Colossae is Beaumont. For those who have not seen face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, they would be knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full insurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which in Christ in whom the hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to seeing your good order, firmness of your faith, and in Christ. Look at the wording he uses here. He talks about struggle. He talks about encourage, knit together, riches, full assurance, understanding, knowledge, mystery, treasures, wisdom, knowledge. I say this in order. So that way you would have good order and firmness in your faith. What is all that? All that is, is maturity language. Listen, Paul is giving us 
must-haves for maturity. And the last thing he says is this, is you must have a commitment to keep showing up. If anyone had a reason to give up, it was Paul. If anyone had a reason to leave the church, if anyone had a reason to give up on God, if anyone had a reason to say, this is too much, this is too hard, it's not working, there's too much pain, there's too much suffering, it would have been Paul. But that's not what Paul does. Instead of giving up, here's what Paul does. He uses his story to encourage others to keep showing up in their pursuit with Christ. That's why he says there's plausible arguments. Well, what does that mean? It means there's a thousand reasons. Right now in your life, you probably have a thousand reasons to walk away from Christ. You have doubt. You have questions. You have suffering. You have pain. You have others' experiences. You have a thousand reasons to walk away from Jesus. And Paul's saying, listen, I get it. There are plausible arguments. But can I give you one reason to stay? I know you have a thousand reasons to leave. But I want to just give you one reason to stay. What is that reason? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is enough. You got reasons to leave, but he's the reason I stay. Come hell or high water. I'm sticking with Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. I'm sticking with Jesus. Through the highs and through the lows, I'm with Jesus. I have every reason to give up, but I'm going to keep showing up because when I needed him the most, that's when he showed up for me. I'm sticking with Jesus. Listen, it's easy. It doesn't take a mature person to point out the problems. It takes a mature person to be able to help make it better. It doesn't take maturity to complain about something. You know what takes maturity? Rolling up your sleeves and getting to work. If you want to find problems, you're going to find a problem. You always find what you're looking for. So if you want to look for excuses, you'll find those. But if you want to look to make a difference, it's available for you too. Listen, maturity is not about age. You know what it is? It's about attitude. Write this down as we close. Maturity is a mindset. It's a mindset that says, today's the day I'm choosing Jesus. I chose him yesterday. I'm going to choose him today. And I'm going to choose him tomorrow. I'm not going to focus on my problems. I'm going to focus on Christ. I'm not going to focus on the fear. I'm going to focus on Christ. I'm not going to focus on the doubt. I'm going to doubt my doubts, and I'm going to focus on Christ. I'm going to focus on the truth of the word, the power of the gospel. I'm going to focus on the goodness of God. It's a mindset that says, I'm going to choose Christ today. And you know what? I have met Christians for 30 years who are still not mature because of their mindsets. And I've met Christians for three months, brand new people to this church mature because they make a decision to choose Christ. Maturity is a, is a mindset. And so here's what I want to do as we close. Is if you call redemption home, 
And this message I know really struck a nerve with some when it comes to the pain and the suffering and the questions and the doubts that we all have. And I know many of you have thousands of reasons to leave and to never come back. But if you're looking for a reason to stay, his name is Jesus. And I wanna encourage you with this, is that Redemption Church is a church that is big enough for your questions. So if you're here and you got some questions, you're struggling, you're suffering, you wanna grow and mature, but you're stuck. With every head bowed and every eyes closed, I just want you to be honest for a minute. Just raise your hand and say, Pastor, I'm hurting. Thank you. 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 Thank you for your honesty, church. Thank you for your honesty. So here's what we're going to do. They're going to throw a number up on the screen. And we want to be able to be like Pastor Paul, present everyone mature, and we want to spend this week doing some pastoral care with you guys. And so if that's you, would you just do me a favor? Would you pull out your phone and text this number? It's normally the number we use for salvations, but right now we just want to edify and encourage the church today. And so we want to do what Paul says, to present everyone mature in Christ. And so would you just text this number right now? Our team's going to reach out to you this week. We're going to give you a call. We're going to give you a text, and we want to encourage you. So fill out this number, fill out the information, and we'll call you today or this week. Now, here's what I want you to do. Some of you, that just blew your mind. You know why? Because you never knew a church could be so kind and loving. You had a perception of God that was based upon other people's experiences and not your experience for yourself. And so if you hear this message today and you're like, I want that. Would you please, with every head bowed again, just slip your hand up in the air. If you would like to give your life to Jesus, thank you. If you would like to give your life to Jesus, thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir, in the back. Thank you, ma'am, in the back. Give me one more minute. As a church, let's just pray this together. Father God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus die in my place for my sins. I place my trust in you. And I give my life to follow you. In your name we pray, amen. Hey, let's give it up for five hands.